crept moments from him, moving restless to his bones, threading tendrils of emptiness to kiss extinction through his flesh. Blood dropped like pinpricks, sweat dripped to the stones of Gethsemane. There in the garden, venom slipped from death's jaws. There, death stretched out its claws, and heaven was torn. It was death that stood over him, whistling the sting of the whip cracks, its tongue the serpent flicker on his back, its bite the thorns drawing bloodied crown. It's heft in the timber he lifted through Calvary's climb. It was death beating in his every step, beating in his chest like last breaths. As death pinned him to Golgotha's peak, the world slipped away beneath. Trees shrunk back to the soil, collapsing to empty seeds. The sun spilled in dark streams down the mountains. Eyes closed to no sleep. Cities slowed their dancing. Firesides filled with eclipse. The stars fell. Love died. Heaven now ash at his feet. And all that was left was death's cold lips, piercing his form, piercing the earth to disorder. arms wide open, and from its bursting heart he arose, breaking the surface of hell's black waters, storm surge in his eyes, head drenched in sighs of the released, dew glistened on his skin like broken chains, standing panting on the shattered grave, death hanging slumped in one hand, the other aflame in the dazzle of a risen world. His wounds spilled the blood of dawns, and his every word was a winged messenger, a blast of trumpets tearing up the skies. I have stood face to face with death. I have wrestled it through the cavernous depths. I have rewritten every word it has spoken. 
I have made it submit. I am the resurrection. I am the breath. Come breathe of me and live. <laughs> Isn't our God good? Isn't our God so, so good? I want to talk to you today about the, the death, the burial, what happened in the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't dawn on me at all when we were preparing for the debate we just had that I would gain such an understanding or a more thorough understanding of the person and work of Christ when I thought about what happens to sinners as they're cast into a devil's hell. But as we started to plumb the depths of Scripture, as we started to ask questions of the early church fathers and to look at the ancient creeds, confessions, and what the church has believed for thousands of years, I came to realize that I didn't really have a great understanding or any breadth, depth of understanding of what actually happened to Jesus Christ when he died the death that we should have died. We'd like to, we like to rehearse that mantra, don't we? That he died the death you should have died so that you might live. And praise the Lord, that's true. We like to say that Jesus Christ died upon the cross so that you can be saved or that you can be forgiven of sins. And praise the Lord, we say to that amen and amen. But I want to think about and talk about and get into the scriptures this morning about the reality that was upon Jesus Christ the moment that he took his last breath. The moment that he said unto the Father, I, I offer my spirit into your hands. And he breathed his last and he died. I don't know if you've ever thought too awful much about that. That God died. What does that mean? How should we think about this death of the God-man, Jesus Christ? Well, as we consider these things and as we open up the scriptures, I think I, did I pray a while ago? I think I did already pray, didn't I? Did I not pray? I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless us with understanding. And I don't want him to just bless us with theological insights and doctrinal understanding. I want him to bless us with an understanding of how this works and is applied to our life. How it should change us. How it should move us to think differently and to act differently and to worship differently. So let's pray. 
please agree with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you now asking that you grant us wisdom and understanding and knowledge. We know that in you are hidden all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We acknowledge, Christ, that you are the center of our reality, that you are the redeemer, you are life, you are the resurrection. We understand that you are the creator, and we pray, Lord, that you would grant us to be able to see you as you are, for who you are, and for what you've done. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to do this great work of redemption that you had planned throughout eternity. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and sealing us for the day of redemption with the work that Christ has done. We thank you for opening our eyes to see who Christ is and to appreciate the Father. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would illuminate our eyes, give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears, open them up wider, help us to appreciate all of who you are in all of your majesty and all of your glory. I ask that you would be with me as I preach and teach your holy, inerrant, infallible, and perfect word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, God, that it would not only pierce the hearts of the unbelievers in here and do heart surgery, that you might take away the, the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and put your spirit in them, but, it, but that it would cut us as well, those who proclaim to be believers in the room, that it would cut all the way down through dividing the thoughts and intentions and that we would be laid bare, that we might be found out by the one true and living God and that we might be granted repentance, that we might walk fuller in you and in your word and that we might walk by the power of the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We love you and we thank you in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Luke 24, verses 5 and 6. It's funny. Uh, I heard Mar um, Robert talking this morning to the men down here as they were praying, and I was scrambling, running around, trying to get some finishing touches on and make sure everything was working. And I think that he quoted this verse, uh, if not this one, one that I'll quote here shortly, because I was thinking, Hey, I was going to use that verse. Uh, but God's good like that. He brings things together quite often. Well, in this verse, Luke 24, 5 and 6, the angel says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Well, let's read a little bit more around that text and, and see what was going on. Why were these women there and why were they doing these things? So if you will stand with, stand uh, to your feet and in reverence to God's word while I read. And let's dig into these things a little here. Luke 24 verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, 
two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. You may be seated. <laughs> so good. Amen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And I want to use this verse, and I want to use it as a springboard to ask you, why do you seek the living among the dead? Let me ask it this way. Why do you seek life among a world that is dying and decaying and passing away? Thinking that in this world and in this life, you will find what you are looking for. Why do we seek that which is life among that which is dead? The text says, he is not here, but he is risen. Well, I want to ask a few uh, questions of the text. And this is one that I want to ask. I want to ask, why did they seek Christ among the dead? Why did these women, why were they going to the tomb and looking for Jesus? Why were they going to the place of the dead in search of Jesus Christ? Why were they doing this? I think it's a very straightforward and simple answer, right? I believe that those that do not have this concept of, of resurrection and, and life ingrained into them and it has not been uh, given to them in the way that Christ can give it and, and reveal it, that they would have certain thoughts about a man who dies. And so I think the reason would be, quite simply, they were seeking him among the dead because he died. Right? Wouldn't we all say that, yes, Jesus Christ died? I believe that's a pretty straightforward statement. None of us would disagree with that in here. Even if you're an unbeliever, I imagine that you would say, yeah, if Christ existed, he died. We as believers believe that he did exist, and we also believe that he died. Well, let's look at a few texts that confirms that, yes, he did die. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I deliver to you as... Of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Yes, Jesus Christ died. Christ, the only, the, the God-man, truly and actually died on behalf of the elect. So we see that there's not much question about this. There's not a lot of debate about this. Jesus Christ died. And for evangelicals, for Christians, they also believe that Jesus Christ is God. Amen? There's not a ton of debate on that. There's no debate on that in Orthodox Christianity. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you're not a Christian. Okay? So in Christianity, we all agree Jesus is God. So that leads us to another question, at least in my mind. Can God die? Okay? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But this can get a little odd. It can get a little strange as we use language to ask these questions and to think about what happened to Jesus Christ, who was God, when he died. Can God die? I would ask that question. The next question I would ask is, if God can die, 
How can God die? How can God die? How does that work? I'm not really sure how that works. Well, number one, God and his deity cannot die. You say, hold up, wait a minute. We just said Jesus is God and he died. So how can you now turn around and say God cannot die? Well, there's a, there's a pretty fantastic and pretty in-depth section there and it says in his deity cannot die let's look at a couple of verses that talks about God not being able to die Psalm 90 verse 2 and you just look over the whole scripture I don't think this is debated I don't think that anybody would say God can die in his deity Psalm 90 verse 2 before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. That means he had no beginning, he has no end, he cannot die. Nor can he be born. What? God in his deity doesn't have a beginning. But we know that Jesus Christ had a beginning at least in his humanity, in the incarnation. You see, Christians nowadays, in my estimation and in my experience, not only do they not think about these things, they don't want to think about these things. Very few and far between, I'd say two out of a hundred that I've found, that want to plumb the depths of these wonderful theological, biblical truths. Let's look at another. Psalm 102, 25 through 27 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So God in his deity, God, the triune person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. God cannot die. He did not have a beginning, and he has no end. He cannot die in his divine essence. Well, I don't know if that just hurts your head, but we're going to do a little bit more work. So, we make the conclusion from this is that God, in his deity, cannot die. Everybody agree with that? God, in his deity, he cannot die. So we ask the question, we make this question, Jesus is God, he is deity, so how can he die? Jesus is God, he is deity, so how can he die? Good question to ask, wouldn't you think? How does this work? I don't get it. Well, glad you asked. Number one, in Christ, God became a man. Now, this is important to understand. Now, I will not pretend to understand how that works. What I do know is that the Bible teaches us that God became a man, yet did not cease to be God in that man. Uh, I can't remember the 
author of the quote, and I will paraphrase. The quote goes something like this. The idea is, the moment that we understand the intrinsic essence of God Almighty is the moment we reduce him to our flawed humanity. Now, I'm not looking to brush anything under the rug with thoughts of mystery and things like that. But I will speak on the mystery of God in this way, that he is awesome. He is full of awe and majesty. His grandeur goes on for eternity, and we will never understand him entirely. I don't even think, now this is my opinion, I don't even think when we stand before the holy and righteous God of the universe one day in glory and we see him face to face and the veil is lifted and, and though now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see clearly and be clearly seen. I don't even think at that moment we will be able to understand with a full sense just who God is. Because remember, we still remain human in heaven. We cannot comprehend. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is above us. But I do not think that that gives us an excuse not to plumb those depths as deep as we can go before we have to swim up for air. So in Christ, God became a man. Show me, Brandon. I will. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, well, where does it say anything about Jesus? John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Son of the living God. He is God. Now, I'm not doing this to prove to you that God, that Jesus is God. I hope that you all agree with me that Jesus is God. We can debate that later. That's fine, and you'll lose. But <laughs> my point this morning is to follow this, this biblically consistent trail to get us to a place where we can accurately understand, in my estimation, what happened to the God-man when he breathed his last breath on this earth before the resurrection. And how does, that, how does that affect us? How does that inform us of, of who we are or what will happen to us? Or for you unbelievers in the room, I'm sure there's one or two here. I hope not, but I'm sure there is. What will be of you when you pass on from this life to the next life? Will you cease to exist or will you be... Uh, Punished for a little while, but then cease to exist and not have to experience it anymore? Or will you be conscious and aware of whatever's happening forever? And the question that is asked here is, what is a man? What is a man? Is a man simply, or a woman, what is a human? Are you, are you merely physical? Are you flesh and blood and breath and heartbeats and blood pumps? Are you, what are you? What, are, what is a human? What is the essence of a human being? And I've studied more on this than I really care to. 
I've learned words that I should have never learned, I think. But I have read all kinds of different philosophers. And I won't say all their names right, from Kant to Descartes to, I've looked at Plato, I've looked at, and great theologians, Burkhoff and Bavink and, and all of these theologians, and even the contemporary guys like John Piper and John MacArthur and um, R.C. Sproul, who recently, not too long ago, passed. And, and I've been trying to wrap my mind around this. What, what happened? What, what is a man? What is a human being? And, and what happens when we die? Especially dealing with um, the debate and our opponents, and one, one of which was a physicalist and, and got me to thinking a lot. Well, this point here is to get us to the place that we understand that Jesus, who is God became a man let's look at another verse that talks about jesus christ who is god philippians 2 6 through 8 though he was in the form of god he existed in the form of god before all of eternity he is deity that's who he is did not count equality with god now people want to make the argument the bible nowhere says that jesus is god it's just a silly silly idea it explicitly says jesus is god many times but implicitly teaches that Jesus is God throughout, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's just one such verse. He did not count equality with God. No one's equal with God except God. That's funny because those TVs out there are playing this and I can hear me. Did you hear it? <laughs> You get double the fun if you're sitting on that wall over there. <laughs> he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had it, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? He let it go. He, but emptied himself, he let it go. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. God, he existed in the form of God. He was equal with God, but for the purposes at hand, he did not count that equality to be grasped, but he laid it aside. He emptied himself and became a servant. He became a man. He became a human being. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. God came down from his eternal throne in a way of speaking, to become a man. We call that the incarnation. He incarnated. He, he took on flesh. And then he existed in the form of a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And here again we see, all in one verse, Jesus Christ, who is God, became a man and died. To the point of death, even death on a cross. And I don't have time today. We'll do that in a crucifixion sermon. But I don't think it's any coincidence or accident that he says that he became a servant, humbled himself to, by becoming obedient to the point of death, and then even qualified that further by saying even death on a cross. Because death on a cross was a whole nother level. Well, okay. So this establishes, I think, that in Christ, God became a man, that he died, further evidence for that. Two, God, the God-man, now this is important, the God-man chose to experience death on behalf of his sheep. 
Remember what question we're, ask, we're answering. Jesus is God. He is deity. So how can he die? One, we prove that Jesus Christ is God and that he did die. Second, we're going to say this. We'll get a little bit further. Number two, the God-man chose to experience death on behalf of his sheep. That God, you say, how can God die? He chose to die. This is important because Jesus Christ in his death is a little different from us in our death because he being the eternal son of God taking on the form of a man and becoming fully man and this is this is more theological language but it's safe doctrinally we understand that Jesus Christ this is a side note okay I'm taking a, a, a 20 second break Jesus Christ is fully God and simultaneously fully man okay and he's never not any one of these after the incarnation you need to understand that so Jesus Christ became a man he came and dwelt among us and he chose to die that's important because Jesus Christ says no man takes my life from me I lay it down, I pick it back up again. You see, we don't have that power. Where does that power come from? Could Jesus, the fully human part, could he have really done the dukes, you know, and, and took them out? Or does he mean that he could call down 10,000 legions of angels because of his divine connection with the Father because he is deity? You need to understand that. Why do you need to understand that? Because the death of God in the person of Jesus Christ is the greatest mercy that you have ever known. For he should have killed you with the snap of his fingers and you would have... He chose, he chose to be brutally executed by the hands of scumbag sinful men on an old rugged nasty cross for wicked sinners for while we were yet sinners christ died for us now we're still talking about the death of jesus we're going to get to the resurrection as well it's resurrection sunday well let's look at this thought of the god man chose to experience death on behalf of his sheep john 10 11 this is good i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep you see, Jesus consistently throughout says that I'm laying my life down. I'm choosing to lay my life down. This is voluntarily uh, something that I'm doing voluntarily. This is, this is me desiring to do this for you. I choose to lay my life down. No one causes it. And let me point something else out too. Lest we think we were so wonderful that Jesus just had to have us and wanted to come down here to make sure that he was going to get us because we so good and so wonderful that he couldn't live without us. Uh -uh. Jesus Christ chose to lay his life down for those that was unworthy of his life. It was for the joy set before him he endured the cross, despising its shame. There was nothing that forced him. The Father did not coerce him. 
The Spirit did not plead with him that they were in holy harmony with one will to do this work of redemption to the glorification of God. You did not earn his death, his propitiation, his atoning work. You did not earn his death by your works or by your worth. That's important. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Some of you in here and some of you watching online may think that I'm being hard on people and that I might cause them to be depressed. Because I am willing to tell you that you are worthless apart from Christ. That you are wicked, unregenerate degenerates. Me too. That there was nothing in you that would cause him to have to come. There was nothing in you deserving of him to come. Not any of your worth, not any of your value, not any of your good deeds, not your good looks, not your superlative academics, not your hard work ethic, not your church attendance, not your piety and being righteous or your giving to the needy. Nothing in you caused him to come. That might be a hard truth for some to swallow. But it is actually a freeing truth. I'll tell you why. If Jesus Christ necessarily had to come because of something in you, then to, no, to, to whatever degree, whatever small degree, he was obligated to do so. And therefore, his love would be contingent on that aspect of your life. The love that Christ has for you is not contingent upon who you are. You did not secure his love by anything that you've done or by the very essence of your being, but it was pure, unadulterated, perfect love. Perfect, perfect altruistic love that came and got you when you did not deserve it. His love is pure. It is not in need of anything to prop it up. He has no contract with you. It is only covenant. Which should speak into every marriage here. Do you love your wife when she is at a certain Whatever, whether it be success, being nice, whatever. Do you love your husband when he's performing well by doing dishes? And Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's another sermon. Let's let get back on track. He chose to lay his life down of his own free will. Nothing compelled him but his love for you and his desire to glorify the Father. And we could go further into that. John 6 says that all of the Father has given to me 
will come to me and I will not lose one and in so doing fulfill the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father that he saved. Well, John ten eighteen. I quoted this while ag- a while ago. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus Christ is the King of kings. Nobody makes him do anything. So this is the first way that we say how God in Christ died, is that he chose to die. This is his own choosing. Jesus, the God-man, voluntarily laid his life down. He died the death that his sheep should have died. So that leads us to this question. What happened when Christ died on behalf of his sheep? Good question. What happened when Christ died on behalf of his sheep? This is a very important question because of this, and I don't have time to really get into in depth on a bunch of this stuff. I don't want to keep you super late today. I know you got other stuff to do. Hopefully you'd rather be here anyway. I know some of y'all love fried chicken, so we got to hurry up. <laughs> what happened when Christ died on behalf of his sheep? Did, did Jesus Christ and his whole person die? Did he cease to exist? Think about this. If Jesus Christ, remember the doctrinal standard that we set forth, and you can find this in the creeds, you can find it in the confessions, and more importantly, you find it in the Bible, that Jesus Christ is fully God and he is fully man, and the two is inseparable. So we ask the question, when Jesus Christ died, what happened? Did the whole person of Jesus die? And and remember the physicalism, the materialism. If you're nothing more than a human body, if the body is all that exists, And when one dies, you are no more. Then did Jesus Christ, if he really is fully man, did he cease to exist in all of his humanity and all that remained was his deity? Separating who he is? Was the person of Christ divided? Even among himself? Upon death, may it never be. So how can we get out of this quandary? Well, we don't believe in physicalism. It's my opinion, say it live to the world, physicalism is a doctrine of the devil. No, we don't believe in physicalism. We don't believe that man is just flesh. But as the rest of the church throughout history has believed, and as the Bible teaches, and I wish I could go through all the texts, we believe that a human being is comprised of more than just the flesh but that he has a spirit, he has a soul. So we need to let the text inform us of what happened when Christ died on behalf of his sheep. Number one, Christ died the same death that all believers would have died and that all unbelievers do die. This was the only way that propitiation could be made. We cannot say that Christ died a different kind of death than we would have died if we had not believed. We cannot say that Jesus Christ died a different death than unbelievers will suffer as they die apart from God. For Christ became sin. Now, what happened to Christ after he was in the grave and the subsequent reality will change because of who he is. But the death he died had to have been the same death 
that you would have died lest the substitution that he made not work. If Jesus Christ didn't really and actually die like you would have in order to take your place, then what did he substitute? And if Jesus Christ didn't die in that way, do unbelievers suffer a worse death than Jesus Christ died? Did Jesus Christ actually die? we got to ask these questions. Well, let's go to the text. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2.17. Somebody say, well, is he like us in every respect? I'm glad you asked. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why did he have to be made like his brothers in every respect? Now, do you think that the Bible makes mistakes? Do you think that it haphazardly uses different words? No. Okay, well, let's say, well, okay, he was made like his brothers in every respect. And I would even push further on that and add to that to say that he was made like us in every respect just because we were made like him in every respect. We're made in his image. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like us in every single way. Lest he not be able to actually pay the debt, uh, the debt a real human being had to pay. He couldn't have paid half of it. He couldn't have paid three quarters of it. He couldn't have paid 99.99999% of it. He had to pay 100% of the debt that we owe to God, lest we still owe. Jesus Christ was fully man, and he, de he died the death every man dies, except those who believe in him, for they escape death. He went into the grave, he died. In order that you might not have to die. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ became sin. Your sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand what that means? It means that I don't just escape death, but I get to actually live life as the righteous Christ that died for me. In the great exchange, the Bible does not teach that Jesus Christ takes away your penalty and says, all right now, kid, Get on with it. Jesus Christ does not make you even with the house so that now by your flesh you can do it. Jesus Christ does not enable you to overcome sin, to get out of this propitiatory debt. He overcomes your sin and credits debits post-resurrection. To your account, all of his righteousness. Let me tell you. Not only did Jesus Christ get you out of debt. 
He made it so you could tap into his account. <laughs> and my man wants to tell me that we just get life out there somewhere. Let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ became your Savior and by faith imparted righteousness, his righteousness to you, you start to live then. You don't got to wait, baby. You start to live now. You've overcome the world through he who overcomes. We don't have to live defeated anymore, people. We ain't even got the resurrection yet. We're just getting excited. So, what happened when, when Christ died? So, we understand that Jesus, who is God, chose to die. There was lots, lots, lots more that we can say about that, but we just don't have time. What happened to Christ when he died? Well, the same thing that happens to, to human beings when they die. Why did Christ die? He didn't have any sin. We know the wages of sin is death. If Christ didn't have any sin, how could he have died? He became your sin. He took on your sin. But don't you forget this. This is going to be important when we get to the next part. When Christ, I'm going to make the claim, and I believe it's absolutely biblical, that Jesus Christ descended into the grave, into Sheol. Okay? Hang with me. That Jesus Christ, upon descending into Sheol, and we say descending, but, you know, up, down, left, right, he went to the place of the dead. Where human beings go when they're dead. You know, that's not that controversial. Shouldn't be. That Jesus Christ, actually human, divine too, but actually, literally, fully man, had a body just like us that was mortal, has a soul and a spirit just like us. You remember Jesus in the garden, he says, my soul is troubled in me. There's little, little things like that you just read over. You don't go, Jesus Christ has a soul? Well, he's a man, ain't he? Jesus Christ is fully man. Well, have you ever even thought about this stuff? I'm like, read over, I read that 5,000 times. When he descended into the place of the dead, you call that paradise, you call it Hades, call it Sheol, call it the grave. When he descended into the place of the dead, okay, when he died, his soul, his human soul, his human spirit continued on in consciousness. He can't die. Human beings made in God's image are immortal. His soul continues on. You say, can you show me that in Scripture? Yes, I can. We ask these questions because we need to know what happened. And, you know, what, what do I need to think about that? Well, two, Christ, like every human being in sin, experienced relational separation from the Father. I, I've got text for all these, okay? We just have a hard time making this simple correlation that Jesus Christ was actually a human being. He, yes, he was God. You say, but he was God. I say, yeah, he was. But he was actually a human being. Yeah, but he was God. <laughs> I know. Christ, like every other human being in sin, remember he, had, he did not have his own sin, and that was the point I was making just a second ago. We need to remember that when he descended into Sheol, the place of the dead, whatever, there's debate on that, and that's fine. We know that he died. When he descended into the place where human beings go when they died, we need to remember this. He descended into that place. He went to that place. What do you want to say? 
not by his own sin, but by the sins of the elect, the sheep, the faithful, whatever you want to call them. The sins of believers had been cast upon him. He became those sins. And when he descended into the grave, he went because of those sins and not his own, which is going to be important. Okay, so Christ, like every human being, in sin, experienced rational separa- relational separation from the Father. Though he had no sin of his own, he became our sin. Now, if you want to talk more about it, I just don't have time. We're, we're fast running out. Uh, I will make a quick distinction just for those watching online. We maintain that Jesus Christ in his humanity, in his person, when he died, remained alive in the spirit. We're going to get to that in just a second. But also, the distinction that we make when Jesus Christ cried out on the cross. Well, I've got that verse next. Let's go ahead and say this. Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I like the King James better. Why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus Christ makes it clear that there's some type of forsaking. There's some type of separation. There's some type of separation, of, of, a break, a, a rip in the heavens. Uh, and I believe that I believe that break, that however we want to describe that, we got to deal with it. We got to deal with it. And I think we understand this very clearly. In, in all of life, in all of reality. How does the Bible harmonize on these texts? Well, I'll tell you one way. I don't have this in my notes, but I want to point it out. Unbelievers walking around today are dead in their trespasses and sins. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You do not have life, and you will not know life, and you will forever, ever, ever, and ever be separated from God in fiery torment that is unimaginable. There is no life. But they're walking around. They're still alive physically. They still have breath. But the Bible says they're dead. Look, well, here I think is a good way to illustrate this. And, and another of these, I, I, I touched on these last week, so maybe you'll have a little bit of a foundation for these words. Unbelievers have a relational separation from God. They're separated from God in relationship. But they are still connected to God in an ontological way. Just meaning that in a substance, a being, a, a way that's underneath everything else. They, they, they're still connected so that, he hold, that they continue to be human beings. Unbelievers can walk around and still have physical life but not have true life because they're still ontologically connected with God, maintaining their human existence while they have no true spiritual life or existence in in any type of meaningful way and so they're dead they're separated from God relationally because this is the wages of sin this is death are you following go back to the cross what was the death that our savior died it was relational separation from the father that we would have experienced throughout eternity had we not trusted in him and been credited with his righteousness, imparted righteousness to us that we might walk into the presence of God 
escaping death. And how might believers escape death? They surely won't escape physical death, lest the Lord come. Come on, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. But we will die, but the Bible says that believers will escape death. They will, they've moved from death to life. It's because true death is not just the death of this physical body. True death is separation from God. And this is the death that Christ died and this is the death, this is the point in the crucifixion, this is the point in the atoning work of Christ that Christ wept over. He was troubled in the deepest depths of his soul. Have you ever asked a question, why was he troubled in his soul? Because his humanity, his soul, his spirit, for at least a moment, for, for however long, we don't know that, but we know for at least a moment, Jesus Christ cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for however brief a time, the eternal Son of God experienced what it was like to die the death an unbelieving human being would die and be separated from God. In the garden, Jesus says in John 12, 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus Christ, in another place he said, Father, is there, is there any other way? Is there any, I don't want to, he did say is that if there be any other way, but nevertheless I will be done. But to, to push past that a little bit and to let you know, I'm just observing now and a little conjecture. I just see Jesus in that moment as human as maybe as I've ever seen him. As he's, as he's gazing into the Father, into the, the Holy Spirit, into God, and saying, I don't want to do this. Can, can God not want to do something? Can God have emotions? You see, people, people want to say that God can't die like this, but, I mean, in Jesus, God has emotions. The impassibility of God is a whole nother doctrine that just blew my mind away. I will not talk about that today, but it's the idea that God doesn't really have emotions. And it's, it's a tough doctrine. But Jesus does. He, he wept. And I think he wept thinking that he was going to pull Lazarus back out of the presence of God. Everybody's like, you know, why did Jesus weep? I think he wept because he knew that he was bringing Lazarus back to this pit. <laughs> but anyway, in this, you remember that moment where he says, God, Father, is there, is there any other way? Any other way? Nevertheless, not my will but yours. And I, I don't think that Jesus had in mind the nails. You know, I'm sure that that hurt. I mean, I couldn't imagine. I don't want to be crucified. And I know that that was excruciating. You know, they made up a new word for it. Excruciating literally means from the cross. That's how bad it was. They made a new word. Excruciating. From the cross. Horror beyond horrors. The, the shame and the humility. Most accounts and historians agree that Jesus Christ would have been 
crucified naked upon the cross. I mean, if you think about someone who hung there for hours, and most of the time people made it days. Christ's uh, crucifixion was very short, but it was because of the flogging and the beating that he had undertaken, and it, because it was according to the Scripture. It had already been planned that way before the foundations of the world by the predetermined plan of God. But many people would stay on the cross for, for days, days. And it was so bad, you know, they would, they would crucify women as well. And the, the, the mangled and twisted looks of horror on the women's faces was so bad that his, history records that they started crucifying women facing the cross because of their distorted faces in the agony. There would be piles of urine and feces under the cross, being on the cross for days upon end. They couldn't come down to go to the bathroom, so there would be piles of feces. Oftentimes, there would be crowds gathered all around the, the crucifixion because it would be a public display. And they, the only way that the people being crucified could lash out or, or to do anything to defend themselves would be to urinate on the crowd, to try to urinate on the crowd. I say all that to say, why don't you say that's gross? To show you the deep shame, especially in a shame culture. The deep shame. Remember that verse. It was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross despising its shame. And I paint that picture to say as horrific and as disgusting and as painful and as shameful as it was, was nothing, nothing compared to being ripped relationally from the divine relationship with the Father. We see Christ descend into the grave. And I thought I had this text on here. I think it's coming off. If not, I'll just read it. I'm going to read it now. First Peter chapter 3. This text is debated. I'm not sure why it's debated so much. I think because... People have such a hard time accepting that Jesus Christ descended into the place of the dead. Which I think that they just let their theological minds outrun them. Because I, I, don't, I don't understand why that's such a hard concept. That Jesus Christ, Christ in his divinity never died. He cannot die. Jesus Christ in his humanity never died in such a way that he ceased to exist. But he died like human beings. He died in the flesh. And he kept on conscious alive in his spirit that's not so we have no problem there's no division in the person of christ because personhood is not in the flesh it's in the inner being the soul so jesus in his humanity continued on even while he was in the place of the dead wherever that was that though his body was dead his divinity lived his humanity lived in his soul and his person he was aware he still maintained his thoughts the two were still united there's no problems this this escapes all the problems that you would run into with all the other views a breaking of the Trinity, a breaking of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. But I think, you know, for fear, uh, this text has been questioned. But now let's just read it. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 uh, through 20. Mm, through 19. We don't have to read that far. Listen to what it says. This is Peter teaching. He says, for Christ also suffered, this is 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, there's the substitution, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. It's, it's very, I mean, that's pretty simple. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven. Now, that could be debated. I, don't, I mean, to the spirits in prison, did I say heaven? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven. Let's go ahead and read 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So some of that stuff is, is controversial and there's debate from different commentators and theologians on that. But wherever Christ went, when he died, we know that his flesh was dead, but his spirit was alive. It's, it's not very complicated. Now, it might get a little complicated when you say, well, where did he go? <laughs> you know, and there's all kind of, I'll tell you real quick if you want to know where I thought he went. Uh, one, I think he just went to the place of the dead. But the place of the dead is kind of a vague idea. We have all these different thoughts and ideas about what the place of the dead or Hades or Sheol, what is that? And I tend to lean towards the view that says that Jesus Christ descended into Sheol, into Hades, but he didn't go into hell and suffer torment because he had no sins of his own. Okay, these are my thoughts. But that Jesus Christ did descend into those places in order to proclaim. See, we, we know here that he did go, that he died in the flesh and he lived in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed. So he did go somewhere and he proclaimed something, right? Now, some had suggested that he went into paradise, but in the view that I hold that understands Hades is just a place of separation, and I think it's right to understand, this is debatable, that Hades proper is understood in the Scripture to be divided by a great chasm, and then you have Hades or the graver Sheol where there's torment, and on the other side of that chasm you have what's called paradise, and it's blessing, heaven, okay? And I believe that Jesus Christ went into this place. You want to say he went to paradise, that's fine. If you want to say he went to the place of the dead or the place of torment, that's fine too. We do maintain that Jesus Christ didn't suffer the fires of hell and torment, for he went and paid and defeated the fires of hell and torment. And he did not have any sin of his own. So, in other words, to make it super simple for you, that Jesus Christ put a sin code on. Remember how the Bible says that we'll be clothed in his righteousness? He was clothed in our sin. And this is the way I view it. This is my mind. Okay, now, just trying to piece together the, Keith said it's too specific. <laughs> I clarify, this is my mind, okay? I've read you the text. He went somewhere. He proclaimed somebody, right? In my mind, I see Jesus Christ descending into Hades and being visible to both realms, not suffering, but going down. And taking his sin, your sin, off, dropping it off where it needs to be, in the place of torment. And saying, you should have believed in me. You didn't. Peace out. You know. <laughs> and going and maybe, you know, I won't say, well, I won't say that. Hanging out with the boys in paradise. Being like, yo, what's up? We got them, dude. What's up? You know. Another theologian said, God doesn't gloat. I don't know about that. You know, he did tell the Pharisees that their mom shagged the devil. So, anyway. That's just my opinion. Heather and I will talk about that later. <laughs> Death has been defeated, okay? 
I think my son right now is asking, what does shag mean? <laughs> Number one, though Christ died for our sin, he lived on in the grave in his soul and spirit, just like every other human being. He proclaimed victory in Sheol. I just told you that. It's part of my view. Oh, yeah, and here was the text I was going to read you. Um, we'll run over it once again. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Very simple, straightforward text there. Yes, Jesus died, but his humanity didn't die, and his divinity didn't die. So do you see how this solves a problem that we ask, can God die? Deity can't die. And though Jesus Christ died, he remained in some way alive in the spirit, just like every other human being, and what happens after that is the key. And in this death of his flesh and life of his spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, the reason I hold that he went and proclaimed victory in Sheol is that I don't really know what you do with that, that he's proclaiming to the disobedient. I mean, I don't imagine there's any disobedience in heaven, right? So, or paradise. I just don't, that doesn't really compute with me. Prove me wrong. I'm fine with that. It doesn't, it's not a huge deal, but I don't see disobedient unbelievers being in paradise, right? So, but anyway, whatever. Uh, number two, the grave sheol could not hold him because he was divine and because he had no sin of his own. Remember that he descended to pay the sin debt. And once the sin debt was paid for, what was left over couldn't be held because the, de the, the, the sting of Sin is death, and, and death is the grip. Death couldn't grip him. It could, and this is the way I pictured in my mind, too, right? Is that Jesus went, you know, went into the place of the dead, dropped off our sin. He took our sin off, and he dropped it down. He's like, you know, this ain't mine. <laughs> you know, I held on to it for a little while. I'm paying for it now, but you got nothing else. And, and I, just, I just think of death trying to grab hold of him in that place. And just like in his earthly life, he was like a ninja. Really, it's like ninja Jesus is one of my favorite aspects of Jesus because if you remember in the Gospels, all the time he's like, whoop, he would just show up. And it, like, if he'd be walking on, this is my favorite part. Like he's so ninja. Like a ninja can hide so you can't see him so you don't know they're there. Jesus Christ is so ninja that he can be right in front of your face and you don't know he's there. Right? He's walking, like he's talking to you. And then all of a sudden, Bam! You know, it's like, Jesus, where did you come from? Like, it's the only time it's ever okay to say, Jesus Christ, where did you come from, right? That's the only time it's okay to say that, and you wouldn't be blaspheming. I'll talk to my wife about that later, too. <laughs> but really, I'm, they said, wow, Lord, where did you come from? Well, my whole point about that, I almost lost my train of thought. <laughs> but that when he descended to pay the sins of the people, when the sins of the people had been paid, he didn't have any other sin on him. He had no sin of his own, so there was nothing that they could grip hold of. So he's slippery, you know. He's sliding out. Oh, oh you thought you had me? Oh, no, you, uh, uh, no, whoop, you know. And since he had no sin, since he's divine, that he conquered the grave. You can see it another way as he just went down and just bashed death in the face. You know, that's another cool image. Whatever he did, his propitiatory sacrifice in his perfect, sinless man partnered with his eternal divine nature could pay the could be the perfect sacrifice 
in the high priest role, watch this, the perfect sacrifice that always lives forever to be that sacrifice, to uphold the mediatory work of Jesus Christ. He could not have died. For if he dies, we need another high priest. But as it is, Jesus Christ offers one sacrifice once for all. And he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Death has no hold. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, when he, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Oh, that's so good. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Woo! Come on, give God a hand on that one. I'm going to get Pentecostal for just a minute. Give God a hand. He's good, ain't he? God is good. Come on, give him a, give him a shout out. Give him a shout out. Give my God a shout out. Oh, man, he's good. If you can't, if that don't light your wood, your wood is wet, as Hambone would say. Woo wee, man! It's eleven fifty nine. I did good today. I only have one more slide, y'all. I got you. Just kidding. Let's go back. Luke twenty four five through six. Come on, you can come on up. I am done. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen. Amen. This morning, if you don't know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, let me plead with you. Let me plead with you to give him your life, to call upon his wonderful name, to trust in this great God who loved you so much that while you were yet a sinner, he came down here and took on human flesh to live the life that you could not live. You can't do it. But God has did it. God has done it. He died the death that you should have died. He descended into the grave that you should have been buried in. He went to the place of the dead where you would have dwelt forever. Separated from the, from the Father. And He concretely justified all who would believe in him and demonstrated it by conquering death, hell, sin, and Satan. Coming up out of the grave, seated at the right hand of the Father with a free offer of salvation to anyone that would come and bow down at the feet of the King. 
come, do business with God. For he was dead, yet now he is alive. Come and do business with God.